When I was 15 years old, I decided I wanted to play guitar. And more specifically, I wanted to play electric guitar. I wanted to rip it up like Billy Corgan, or Jimmy Page, or Jimi Hendrix, or Mike McCready of Pearl Jam. So I got a cheap knockoff Telecaster-type axe, and crucially, in all the wrong ways, a very cheap, very small 15-watt amplifier. And hey, it's got a distortion overdrive button on it. I was well on my way to rock stardom before I played a single note, but I was absolutely crestfallen to immediately learn that me and my particular amplifier sounded like spectacular crap. Absolute garbage. And despite twiddling the knobs, I couldn't make myself sound like my Guitar Heroes that I kept reading about in Guitar Hero magazine. I came very close to stopping altogether, despite now having played guitar for 25 years. I ended up somehow convincing our dad to buy me an acoustic guitar instead, and happened upon a blues guitar instructional book. It's probably a little more complicated than what I'm about to say, but my reinterest in guitar music, and the single biggest factor that I can remember in keeping me going, was a single guitar lick, a blues guitar lick, and it goes like this. That lick, and my burgeoning interest in finding the connections between traditional blues music and the classic rock music I held so dear, became a gateway to a whole life in music. Today, on a gateway album's theme to Louder Than Sound, we break down Muddy Waters' 1978 album, Muddy Mississippi Waters Live. Welcome to everyone's favorite show, Louder Than Sound. Our first and only question for the contestants is, what's louder than sound? Theoretical noise particulates from the 15th dimension? What's louder than sound? Uh, nothing, Alex, because of course this is a theoretical question. What's louder than sound? What is two brothers, who are mostly similar, but sometimes dissimilar taste in music, asking each other to listen to and absorb some of their favorite music albums based on idiosyncratic themes that they likewise force each other to consider? That's louder than sound. Listeners, and welcome to another edition of Louder Than Sound, the new podcast from your old pals who brought you Bowie vs. Dylan, coming at you with a new episode every Friday. Uh, today on Louder Than Sound, we're starting a new theme, and that theme is, as alluded in the cold open, gateway albums. So by gateway albums, we're thinking of like, you know, that old adage about like marijuana becoming a gateway drug to harder drugs, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that's what I was thinking about. How anyway. would you know? And that seems like that has been, you know, roundly dismissed and disproven at this point in age. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that whole concept of finding one little thing that, like, appeals to you now and opens things up and brings you to a whole bigger world of stuff uh, is is still compelling. And it's, it happens in all kinds of things. We did do an episode with us, our last episode with our guest star, our mother, Nancy Beck. Woo! And she talked about Emmylou Harris and Luxury Liner. But now we're getting into our own gateway albums. Albums that somewhere along the way led us into a rich new life of musical discoveries. And with that, Jake is bringing us into Muddy Mississippi Waters Live, which I thought you said it was 1978, but from what I read, it came out in 1979. Okay. Never mind. I don't I think know if that matters. But he may have, uh, I think he played some shows in 78. I may have gotten confused. Well, I think it was Sorry. recorded. I mean, I'm looking at Wikipedia, so, you know, there's right. possible there's some errors here. But no. it, was, it, was reco- it was recorded from 77 to 78 and came out in 79. That's what it is. You're right. You're right. 
Hey, don't kick me off the podcast. I'm the co-host. You're out. You're <laughs> oh. out. We all me talking about this album I listened to two times ever in my life. <laughs> so it's going to be a really informative show, everybody, as I read the entire Wikipedia entry of Money This Is For Water's Life. It's not a very long one, so yeah. I'm going to really like talk about who played a harp on which songs. Well, uh, you know, don't uh, don't act like that's not just what we do on this podcast. It's just read the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> well, usually we rewrite it first. <laughs> that's true. You gotta you gotta make it sound like you're not plagiarizing it. <laughs> it's an old school trick. An old school trick. You know, we went through college. We remember how it's done. Yeah, absolutely, we remember how to cheat our way through life. It's great. I'm a teacher, so I really know how it's done. <laughs> All right, Jake, take it. Tell us about you. Spin a tale, a yarn about. Muddy Mississippi's Waters Live, starting with Muddy Waters. <laughs> I didn't even know you had a guitar under there. I can't see this. You can't really see it. Trick. It's a it's a shock. Uh, so that little lick, <laughs> that little lick that I alluded to and then played a couple times, it's a it's a very common twelve bar blues uh, quote turnaround, which gets you finally to the twelfth bar and the crucial five seven chord, the change that sends you hurtling back towards the tonic in the first bar and makes the blues the song that never ends, basically. It's like you just can't stop getting to that turnaround and then going back to the beginning. So I can't remember what came first, uh, this little blues instructional book I got, or my some might say strange interest in blues music as like a very <laughs> a very white young man in rural Wisconsin. As he is now the age that you were when you got into this, or thereabouts. Oh man, totally. Uh, but around that time, I started snatching up some very ill-advised blues compilations from used CD stores like Candy. <laughs> These sort of like fringe market compilations. Um, they're not illegal or bootlegs. Um, they're just ill-fated licensing deals packages with artists, managers, and song publishing companies that were this not... Sounds a, I'm sorry. This sounds a lot like a younger brother who picked up all those punk compilations. <laughs> right. It's kind of like... Of like punk... Of other than like playing, you know, popular songs as punk songs, you know, like... Right. It's it funny the first time you heard Britney Spears plays with a punk song, but then, you know... <laughs> but after that... Time, on the same disc, and you're like, okay, that's enough, guys. Oh, I know, I know. Hey, you only got to pay 10% back to the original artist, you know, <laughs> when you sell all those things. Uh, so the the albums that, you know, and I didn't know any better. I was literally 15, 14 years old. Uh, and so these these albums were not, you know, official albums by the artist. This happened a lot with Jimi Hendrix, too. It's, a, it's actually a really fascinating and long story, like how all this licensing stuff works. But anyway, I still got those, uh, I still got a bunch of those CDs hanging around my CD shelf. Uh, classic titles like John Lee Hooker's Boom, Boom, Boom. Uh, <laughs> Time Life's aptly titled Blues. T-Bone <laughs> Walker's Stormy Monday. Uh, I have a couple by B.B. King, I'm sure. Other, you know, Chess Records put out a bunch of compilations. and um, So they're either greatest hits plus leftover comps or poorly recorded live sessions or odds and sods or whatever. And the reason I didn't pick one of those for this podcast like I wanted is that, Charlie, you couldn't find them on iTunes. They're not no, They're not real albums. Our, well, and one of our goals with this is to present music to people that we, you know, find exciting or interesting and to let get, like have them be able to go out and listen to it right now. So that's when one of our like under the cover uh, official rules for us is that it has to be something available on a major right. streaming network. Right, and I thought about so we like, both have Apple Music, so that's the one we listen to. But just any major streaming network, and and those ones we couldn't find them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, on top of hearing all these CDs and kind of absorbing them all, um, no matter their quality, um, I also began to hear the blues in almost all of the music that I held dear at the time. 
So all of the classic rockers like the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Allman Brothers, like almost everyone, uh, even the Beatles cut their teeth and advanced slash stole the musical forms of the blues. Even well, you can hear that a lot. I realized that listening to this, I, I heard it a lot in the 50s, you know, stuff like Chuck Berry and oh, yeah. Richard. Like there's blues, it's just like sped up blues. Exactly. And that's what rock you and know? roll is. Rock and roll yeah. is just the sped up blues. So. Um, so all that music that I loved, um, even my vaunted grungy Pearl Jam used almost exclusively blues modalities in their guitar solos. Um, so for me, the blues is really one of the biggest, if not the biggest, gateway musical forms that I can identify for myself. Um, one of these borderline compilations, or so I thought at the time, was Muddy Waters, Muddy Mississippi Waters Live from 1979, it turns out. Um, and it also turned out to be an actual release. So when I was going through my my shelf, I saw that one. I was like, hey, I wonder if this is real. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's the album that I've chosen as my gateway album for this podcast. But first, Jazz, let's talk some Muddy Waters. He Muddy was, Waters. He was born... Clearly Mc- his real name, right? Uh, let me tell you what his real name was. It is McKinley Morganfield. He was born in 1913. Uh, he grew up on the Stovall Plantation in Mississippi and taught himself how to play guitar and harmonica. Um, just like local blues artists Sunhouse and Robert Johnson. He was recorded by Alan Lomax on uh, Lomax's Great American Folk Recordings Excursion. Oh, interesting. So he was one of the early ones there, and ended up moving to Chicago in the early 40s to begin a recording career, partly on, quote, quote, race records for Columbia, and then with the Chess Brothers, the legendary blues blues brothers guys who, who had labels. Um, he had some hits in the 50s with a very famous band that included Little Walter, Otis Spann and Willie Dixon, all of whom went on to fame themselves. And he traveled to Europe in the late 50s to lay the foundations for the resurgence of interest in blues overseas. So well that's, done, Muddy. Nice one. Yeah, way nice. to go. Yeah, way to invent entire good forms one. of one. music, Muddy. Good one, Muddy. <laughs> Muddy. Hey, Muddy. <laughs> We're on a first name basis. <laughs> hey, Mud. Hey, Mud. We just call you Mud. Hey, Mud. Hey, Muds. 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 Uh, so that's good old Mud's uh, orange st- origin story, basically. And he <laughs> he was and is exceptionally influential on the blues success throughout the world. He basically invented the most popular subgenre of blues called the Chicago blues. There's much to discuss about his life, but what I'm really interested in conveying about him right now, and the conversation that gets us to the album of his that I picked is that he got uh, more or less forgotten and left aside in the early to late 1960s, and he needed himself a comeback, Jazz. Yeah, So you, you can enter here some well-intentioned but increasingly ridiculous efforts to return him to relevance by a bunch of well-intentioned but increasingly ridiculous people. So <laughs> I, have a really, I have a really fun little, uh, little uh, multiple-choice-slash-match game for you here. Okay, I'm ready. Jazz, I'm going to give you six... I'm going to give you six descriptions of his comebacks. These are all real, okay? And just by hearing the descriptions, I want you to rank how successful the end product turned out to be. They all resulted in albums. Does that okay. make sense? So I'm going to... No, I'm say gonna, it one more time. Say it one more time. Okay, I'm going to read you six situations where... Okay. Uh, real situations where somebody tried to help Muddy Waters, legendary blues musician, return uh-huh. to relevance. They okay. all resulted in an album... I just want you to rank, just by hearing the descriptions, how well the end product turned out. Okay. So I have to okay. listen to all of them and then put them in, like, number That's order. That's right. That's right. And they're okay. just going to be in, in, uh, in chronological order. Okay. So here goes. In 1963, Chess Records attempts to reconnect him with folk audiences and take advantage of the current fad 
by having him trade his trademark electric sound for acoustic instruments on the album Folk Singer. Okay. okay, that sounds like it could be somewhat successful. All right, so put that in your put that in your memory banks okay. there. All right, got okay, it. in 1967, he re-recorded some blues standards with Bo Diddley, Little Walter, and Howlin' Wolf, called the Super Super Blues Band. And this was <laughs> Chess Records. Except, Go ahead. <laughs> except for the name, that sounds like a good idea. I know, but it's a great band name. Don't knock it. Uh, <laughs> and this was Chess Records' attempt to connect him with a rock audience uh, this time around. Okay. Okay. All right. 1968, they booked him some studio time with a psychedelic soul band called Rotary Connection that featured, quote, modern psychedelic instrumentation and resulted in the album Electric Mud. That sounds like a terrible idea. Okay. All right. I think you're on the right track. Not to spoil, <clears throat> not to spoiler alert you, but... Uh, the ni- Okay, number four. The 1969 album Fathers and Sons, which returned him to his classic Chicago blues sound and featured an all-stars blues backing band which included Michael Bloomfield and Paul Butterfield, both hot young musicians at the time. Uh, this was a master-slash-teacher-student-slash-acolyte situation. Okay, that one sounds like a, a moderately, you know, good idea. Okay. In 1972, he recorded the London Muddy Waters Sessions, which was a follow-up to the highly successful London Howlin' Wolf Sessions from a year earlier. Howlin' Wolf mm-hmm. is another blue, famous blues musician who needed a comeback. Um, this was intended to showcase Muddy with the younger, up-and-coming British rock musicians that included Steve Winwood of Traffic and Mitch Mitchell of uh, just uh, just having been through the Jimi Hendrix experience. Yeah, okay, all right. All right, last one. In 1975, he went to Woodstock, New York, and recorded with Paul Butterfield and two members of The Band on an album you called, uh, I mean, you called, you guessed it, the Muddy Waters Woodstock album. <laughs> uh, he then, very soon after, featured on The Last Waltz, the Martin Scorsese documentary about the band's farewell concert. All right. All right, from six so, to one, worst um, to first. I'm going to put the psychedelic band one at bottom. Boom. You nailed it. Yeah, okay. I'm going to put London Musicians one at number five. Uh, yep, you got that one too. Yes. No, wait. Okay. Wait, hold on, hold on. What? Uh, mm. Wait a minute. Did I screw this up? Yes, you did. I Whatever did screw this up. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? All right. Yep, keep going. Uh, you are, you're good so far. Okay. Yep, you I'm got put, it. Uh, Woodstock 1 next. Woodstock 1 is next. Okay. Wow, I'm on fire here. Yeah, you're doing great. All right. Um, folk 1 next. Uh, nope, not quite. No, no, okay. All right, then... Um, I'm losing him. We had young up-and-comer blues and guys... Okay, I got him. And then we had a... Yeah, no. we had, so what you have left is London Muddy Waters Sessions. That was the British blues. Oh, I did band. that one. Oh, you did that one. Oh, yeah, you got that one. Uh, oh, Fathers and Sons. That's the one with the young... That's the young American okay. backing band. Is young American, there's the him coming back with the old guys and him doing folk. Right. So folk was not the, the fourth one. No, it was not. All right, let's go with the young up-and-comers then. Uh, in 1969? No, that one's, that one's also better than number... Number four. Okay, well, okay, then it's got to be the the actual old guys. Yeah, the old guys coming together. It was a stylistic train wreck, um, but apparently it had it had wonderfully contentious studio chatter because uh, (laughs) Muddy Waters and Helen just like us, just like us. (laughs) Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf like hated each other, but they were both successful. Cool, 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 cool. cool, cool. (laughs) Interesting that Muddy Waters (laughs) sings a song called Helen Wolf on this very early. That's right, he sure does. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, well, then we're going to put the uh, the folk one there. Yeah. So um, the last two are actually are actually you can interchange them. They're both classics. Okay. So folk singer is like on Rolling Stone's best albums or whatever. And, okay. But Fathers and Sons like really got him back into relevance. So. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. But good work anyway. I was good close to anyway. that. I was you really close. were. See. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to hear the idea to know that it's not I a good be, idea. I uh, should you know, a studio exec in the late 60s to early 70s, because I know what's actually going to work here, That's guys. right. That's right. And you don't think, um, you don't think a psychedelic one uh, with a, with the rotary, a, the rotary That's a hard connection? pass. That's a hard pass, buddy. So I just got to say. Go back, back to the drawing board. I just got to say. Well, it's, I mean, this is such a big conversation, because it was just like people coming up to him and being like, how can we get you back, baby? And he, uh, you know, they, these are all, you know, interesting ideas. And he just ripped out his guitar and played some blues licks and was like, like that. Yeah, just like that. Like that. Hey, I'm Muddy Waters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just got to say, he said about the, the 1968's Electric Mud, uh, quote, that one was dog s. It started out selling like wild, and then they started sending them back. Uh, <laughs> but, what was, but what was hilarious like is that it was mud. enough of a success... Um, that they made another album the following year using the exact oh. same two sessions. <laughs> <laughs> Even better than the first, no doubt. <laughs> all right, so all of this brings us to his final incarnation as a famous musician because he died in 1983. And you I was going to say, I thought he died. I ran across something in the early 80s. Yeah, and uh, we went up to about 1975-76. Um, but before that, before he died, he was really and truly back as a commercial force and garnered the respect befitting his status. And this was all a little due to the aforementioned comebacks, but mostly due to one man. And that man's name is Johnny Winter. Johnny Winter, I've heard Johnny Winter, baby. Is he on the album? He is on the album. Okay, I'm talking about Johnny, and I don't know Johnny Winter real well, but I definitely know the name and know a little bit. Yeah, he was a very famous blues musician, especially in the 70s. And so he idolized Muddy and became his friend, and he ended up producing Muddy Waters' last four albums. Um, all of which were successful, and three of which won Grammys for whatever you win Grammys for, you know, with blues albums. Best folky blues album from the year. <laughs> Grammys. Recorded uh, by a former blues <laughs> right? rock star, really important led, living legend. Right, who had made several comebacks that were not quite as successful. <laughs> but this one was really good. I think he, I actually think he I won. I think goes to Muddy Waters. Ah! Take think... that, Howlin' Wolf. <laughs> You'll be howling about that. Um, so the 1977 album Hard Again is at long last considered Muddy Waters' comeback album, all capital letters, despite there, despite there being about 15 previous contenders for that crown. So Johnny Winter was a steward for Muddy and a willing acolyte, and their connection and trust finally returned Muddy to full glory. So way to go to them, to Muddy, to Johnny, to all of us, really. And... <laughs> Amidst the real all, winners in this. And amidst all of this final coming back and coming back, we, <laughs> we finally have the album that I chose, which is called Muddy Mississippi Waters Live, um, coming out in 1979. Uh, before I explain it, though, Chaz, what say you? I don't think you're much for the blues, but maybe you were thrilled by the live aspects. Maybe Johnny Winter tickled your fancy for some reason. Uh, <laughs> certainly Muddy could have. Um, this might be a lower score than we're used to seeing. I think you'll give it a negative 1.5 for purely personal preferences. And that won't be slandering the great Muddy Waters. So everyone settle down. Well, Jake, I'm going to disagree with you on this one. Really? Ooh. 
I kind of liked it. Sassy. I liked it. Okay, hit me. No, Why? I'm not. I'm not into the blues. I don't know if I own any albums that would considered be considered blues. But there's something I, I was thrilled by. I liked the live aspect of it. Yeah. Because you could just feel like this is this community up there. You could feel these people like so gelling together in that way that live musicians do to them sometimes. And, you know, that can be very thrilling. Um, I had noted earlier, like, I, I, again, I haven't listened to tons of blues, but I could definitely hear those, especially the early rock sounds, and the classic rock sounds of how much blues. And not even the more obvious bands like, I don't know, Cream or something. Sure, like, sure. Right. Like, like I just you see that undercurrent. And I, the, my big thought was just how much that early rock and roll, that Chuck Berry stuff and, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. Little and like, Richard. Little Richard, like, it just feels like fast blues. Like, when you when you compare those, you know, and just something I, you know, didn't have thought of before. But you got the solid bass and drums foundation going, and yeah, that endless sound where it just, you know, there's one track on it that's like 10 minutes long. It doesn't necessarily feel like 10 minutes no, long. No, it, it doesn't. doesn't. I agree. It just goes, and just goes, and just goes. And I got guitar on top, and piano, and lots of harmonica, and accidentally you know looking through this entry on wikipedia apparently there's harp and stuff going on there i didn't even know that was i didn't hear that stuff you know well it's a it's a mouth harp oh okay okay there you go well that i heard <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you didn't hear the harp like somebody up there like ripping off um so Overall, I kind of liked. I liked the drive to it. I liked uh, Muddy Waters got a really expressive, distinctive voice. Like every blues musician I've ever heard was trying to be Muddy Waters, at least yeah. at least vocally. He's re- <laughs> he's really like one of the originals for sure. He's just like the godfather of blues. You yeah, know? he really. It's. it's and I knew that. But I've, I've never been into Muddy Waters and all this stuff here. Um, my favorite track, I think, was "Baby, Please Don't Go." Baby, please don't go. Uh, one of the last, I think it's the second to last song on there, but really like driving, there's just a lot going on. And it's, and it's a little shorter, which in in this context, it felt like it was all packed in there. There was a lot to yeah. listen to. Right, one right, right. Song up that and a little a bit one. little bit different instrumentation too. Like not. Yeah, that may be like a good one to put on a comp or something, you know, if you're going to put it together. Right? Well, that was originally on his... 79 list or something, I don't know. That was originally on his Folk Singer album from 63. Oh, was it? Okay. So that's that's okay. why that got stuck on there, because it was kind of a hit back back when. Now, I do feel like I need to mention the uh, some uncomfortable lyrics. Some, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll go over that. Some problematic lyrics. <laughs> I'll go over that a little one. bit. Yeah. I'll talk just a little bit about what I heard. All right. The most notable one is probably she's 19 years old. Yeah. Which, in looking up, I just I like looked up the lyrics to just, and then in doing so, stumbled upon the fact that uh, this is a true story about his second wife. Yeah. He was in his mid-60s at the time, and... Yeah. He married her in 1979. Right. And she was, by that time, she was probably like 21. But mm. That's... he mentions in, uh, in Manish Boy that he, you know, likes young women. There's yeah. a lot about that. Uh, the song Howling Wolves seems to be about a guy who won't take no for an answer. Yep. So there's, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. definitely some problematic lyrics by current standards, but a uh, little uncomfortable there, <laughs> buddy. So if I'm not paying their too close attention to the lyrics, I like it. More, yeah. but honestly, I liked it. I didn't love it, you know. I don't, okay. know if I, I don't know if I'll go back to it, but I could actually see myself maybe listening to this again. Sometime. Wow, wow! Uh, so the longer tracks fit a little long to me, but yeah. it's a good sound. And yeah, and I and I liked the live aspect. I think I would like the live aspect better than a studio version of this. So I actually gave it a one, Jake. A it plus one stars. Plus one. I know. Wow. It's by far the farthest off anyone's been on our guests yeah. so far. Well, I mean, that's why we play the game, Chaz. That's why we're here. Yeah. That's why we're here. But you gotta roll the dice. 
<laughs> you do. I mean, in this life, uh, with the with the blues, you just you gotta. Bum, ba, da, ba, ba. All right. Um, so my take on it is that the album is obviously live. Well, I think we've mentioned that. Um, it was it was called from two mini residencies that Muddy had from March seventy seventh through August seventy eight, as Chaz stated earlier, at two separate blues clubs, Harry's Hope in Cary, Illinois, and the Masonic Auditorium. He fits right in with the Masons in Detroit, <laughs> Michigan. Um, when you think of Masons, you think of Muddy Waters. <laughs> you really do. Uh, it features a host of extremely good and extremely classy sidemen, including Bob Margolin, Luther Guitar Junior Johnson. Calvin Fuzz Jones, Will Big Eyes Smith, and Pine Top Perkins. Uh, Jake, I really wish you had said this ahead of time so that we could have come up with our own blues nicknames. You can't do better, though. This episode. My problem is you can't do better than this. <laughs> this. These guys definitely fulfill, and some might say exceed, the blues requirement for badass nicknamed sidemen. <laughs> I would be Charlie Fishbone back. So which is which is your favorite? Which is your favorite out of these? I, fuzz. I, you like Fuzz best? <laughs> oh yeah. I gotta go with Luther Guitar Junior. Guitar oh, Junior. Guitar Junior. <laughs> Guitar Junior's really good. I mean Pine Top Perkins. You, it's almost like you can't beat any of them. Will Big Eyes Smith? Big Eyes? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, so we're for Fuzz. Charlie Fuzz back. Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Chaz Fuzz back. Just call me Fuzz. Just call me Fuzz. <laughs> uh, the real, the real star among them, though, um, is a fellow by the name of Johnny Winter. Uh, but we'll we'll get to him just a little bit later. Does he have a nickname, or is Winter? I mean, is that his real name? He doesn't need one. Or is it's, the stage name? It's just Johnny Winter. I think. I mean, that, Johnny Winter's a good name. Maybe he just thought like. I think that might be. Like, I think that might he be. He was like, his... "Hey, hey, guys, what's my nickname?" Maybe they're like, "Your name's Johnny Winter." You uh, your you name's Johnny Winter. Why don't you shut up and play? Um, I'll look up to see if that's his real name. Okay, that's sure. fine. Um, I'll say in the meantime that I'm in, I'm very impressed with this album, and in particular it is how his real name. it is okay, um, and in particular how flipping lathered up the audience is to hear Muddy Waters oh, yeah. do this thing. Like they are more pumped for Muddy than I've ever been about anything, including <laughs> the birth of my children or getting married or whatever. Like they are wildly excited, literally yelling and screaming at each lyric and vocal line that Muddy rips off especially during the opening song, Manish Boy. Yeah. First of all... Which is that, which is that, just that riff right there for six minutes or something. When I was young, boy. First of all, everyone learns how to spell both man and boy. <laughs> and they get a nice sociological math lesson about how exactly old you have to be to cross the threshold from boy to man. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that's why the audience is losing their minds. That's exciting stuff, because they finally know for sure. What's the answer, Chaz? Do you remember? What... No, I don't. I, I don't. I do it's not, uh, it's not just twenty one. It's way past twenty one. <laughs> way past twenty one. Uh, this is a truly electric set, both in terms of the instrumentation, which is pretty white hot and searing, especially on the part of Johnny Winters. We're you know I don't know if we've made fun of him yet. We will in a minute here, uh, but he I think he enters our official hot lick hall of fame off the strength of this album alone, um, especially his slide guitar. And I'm thinking, Chaz, we need to get a sponsor for the hot lick hall of fame. Um, I'm, thinking, hey. I'm thinking from a rib shack or a, a hot wing purveyor. The hot lick. <laughs> obviously, obviously. <laughs> Brought to you by Hot Wings. A <laughs> uh, quick word about old Johnny Winter here, who not only appeared to lend his fame at the time to get money back, um, and who prevented or provided the aforementioned face melting licks and energy on tracks one, five, and seven, 
but who is also absolutely hilarious whenever he stops using his hands and starts using his mouth to speak. Uh, he's very excited and he's reverent, it's true, but he's also doing that white guy growly blues impersonation, which is so bad it's good. Uh, so, uh, hats off to you, Johnny Winters! <laughs> Mother... Muddy waters, everybody! He's just yelling muddy waters in that growly thing. It hurts my voice just to do it. I gotta stop. I had a blues singer to sing for decades, you know? I don't know. I mean, ask Tom. I would assume that all these comeback comebacks were because after a while he couldn't do it anymore and he started singing like this instead. <laughs> I'm British boy! Everyone's and then he had to take a little break for a while. When I was a young man! Until he could get that growl right back, and then he went back in there. I think it's just, it's a lot of cigarettes and whiskey, and it's like some, maybe the, maybe the, like, awful nodes that they, you get on your vocal cords actually help out. Yeah, you don't, you don't get those off, you don't take those off. You can't shave those off, they're just gonna make you no. growlier, I guess. You, like, you get, you have somebody, a surgeon go in and put on extra. Yeah. That's what you do. Yeah, indeed. Um, the band is also very electric sounding, um, in differentiation to some of the blues that Muddy was known for earlier in his career, like the folk singing one. Um, there's some classy electric piano thrown in there for good measure, and the whole thing sounds, quote, hot, like the gain and the distortion and the treble are cranked up, or that everyone is really close to their mics. It's like a hot sound. Um, uh -huh. But I think it sounds great engineering-wise. It's not distorted or unbalanced, and it's not thin either. Um, the drumming and the bass hold it down nicely. So good job. Muddy's in, very, Muddy's in very fine form. He's vamping and growling and improvising vocally and taking pauses whenever he damn well feels like it to do his thing, uh, which is his want. I presume he's got some extremely salty facial singing expressions going on too, which is... Oh, we can only assume. It's fun to imagine while you listen. Um, you know that thing that singers do when they twist their mouth sideways with their eyes closed? Like on yeah. man! That's the cover, basically, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, Muddy's doing that in heaven right now with Johnny Winter, while Johnny Winter introduces him over and over again to the Blues Choir of Angels. They're both up there. Um, on this on this earthly set, he's got the audience almost literally enraptured. They're like totally in the palm of his hand. Um, he's a fantastic performer, and this is a great performance caught on record. His comeback albums starting in the mid-70s are great too, and his resurgence was very deserved. Uh, but to my mind, this kind of live experience can't be replicated by the other albums. So it's kind of a true testament to his greatness. Uh, my standout tracks are, of course, uh, Manish Boy, which is like a perfect way to start the album. Um, I find it thrilling as an opening shot, especially with the audience as clearly drunk as they were about everything. <laughs> uh, Baby Please Don't Go, which you mentioned, is a nice refreshing yeah, toned-down departure from the Screaming Electrics. Um, and it's a good spot on the album for it, too. Um, and then Deep Down in Florida, which has some funny moments, including Muddy basically bragging about getting too old for this crap that he's doing right now. <laughs> he's just got to go down and kick it in Florida. Um, we should all be able to brag about. I can't imagine him sunning himself in some retirement condominium down in Florida. Uh, but, you know, he can do whatever Apparently he wants he by could. this point. Yeah, he, he sure <laughs> dreamed it. I enjoy how tight the track list is. The original release is only seven tracks. Uh, which is the one I picked up on CD in my teens. The longest uh -huh. track is Deep Down in Florida, which is 10 minutes plus, but it also closes the album, which seems appropriate. Uh -huh. And the whole thing kind of gets packed into a scant 40 minutes, which is nice. Um, I think that works in its favor, as my only nitpick about blues albums these days is that the genre can sound very samey. You know, it's kind of a natural... Yeah. It's like yeah. the 12-bar blues over and over and over yep. again. Yep, Um Not There was agree. There was a legacy edition of this album, which has like a huge second disc that I'm sure is just as good, 
per individual track, but it would wear long for me. So um, as the original gets in, gets on with it, and gets out while well, the getting's good, and so I don't have a lot of nitpicks. One I do have is one that you've already mentioned, which is the result of a much needed cultural shift, which is the young woman worship, objectification, and icky lust that was basically the stock and trade of blues music for like 70 years, um, including Buddy and his contemporaries. Uh, you mentioned the song She's 19 Years Old, which is also, you know, the problem's right there in the title, I guess, at least for a man of his age, but at least she's over 18, you start telling yourself. Yeah, I mean, there's that. At least. Uh, you know, thank God she's not 16 or 17, like a lot of the other blues songs and all the, like, the groupie songs that uh, Chuck Berry was singing about um, earlier right. in his career as well. Right, a lot of early so, rock stuff about like, that, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> she's going back to class after we do it, or whatever, nasty uh -huh. stuff. Uh, so you start thinking, like, okay, she's 19 years old, and then as soon as you get done thinking that, uh, he sings, she's got waves just like a baby child, which I don't even uh -huh. want to know what that's supposed to mean or allude to, <laughs> uh, but it's probably not good. Anyway, she uh, Muddy can't keep her satisfied, and that's really uncomfortable and most likely uh, almost, you know, probably near cancelable at this point, that song. Um, unfortunately, though, that was probably a relatively respectful take on the whole thing at the time he released it in 1958, when he was only 45 years old. <laughs> okay, so but, yes, it was... Yeah, so the, you know, we're talking only he probably came back years. in the set about his, you know, <laughs> then wife, or almost wife. Yeah, I mean, good for her for making her an honest woman, I guess. Uh, anyway, with Muddy Mississippi Waters Live, you better like the blues, which I do, but not as much as I used to. And even though this is extremely fun for me to revisit, and I did hear a lot of new sounds and understood the musicality of it more than when I was younger, I give it a 2.5. Out of a five. And that's what I got for you, Chaz. What are we doing next time? Hey, we did your gateway. Next up is my gateway, or one of my many gateways. Of I'm course. sure we could come up with lots. Um, we'll be taking things overseas once again to mm. Germany. Ooh, with Germany. And, and a little genre by the name of Krautrock. <laughs> or Clusters. Clusters, 1974 <laughs> album, Zucker I'm laughing just thinking oh. about talking about it. Uh, you know, just you having a good chuckle. Rock. We've had so many discussions about Crow <laughs> Rock through the years, and I look forward to having a much more in-depth one on our next episode. Let's do it. I can't wait. So that's it from Louder Than Sound, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>